Chapter 2, Part 2 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Chapter 2, Part 2. The religion of the Bible rests on a foundation of historical facts. Overthrow these, and its doctrines are rendered uncertain. To take the miracles out of the Bible is not only to take away its evidences and the basis of all its truth, but it is to destroy the very structure of the Bible itself, leaving a mass of uncertain, unsanctioned teaching, to which no one need give heed, except so far as his own interests in this life are concerned. The body cannot live long after its bones are removed. It is sometimes stated as an excuse for the Bible by those who do not accept the narratives of Scripture and yet cling to its moral teachings that it is not a scientific book, that it does not pretend to teach science. This account of the Bible does not agree with the character of its writers as capable and honest and least of all as an inspired book claiming to be from God. Nor does this agree with the contents of the book itself. The Bible is a scientific book, if teaching science correctly is a mark of its being such a book. The Bible is a standard book on jurisprudence, and its teachings are the basis of all civilized law. It is supreme in ethics. It contains the model form of government, which is more or less copied by all modern constitutional governments today. It is a standard work in literature. It is full of political and commercial wisdom. Its rules for personal and family life have, when followed, led to the highest and best results. It contains sound hygienic principles. Now, it would be strange if a book so full of all other wisdom should fail when it comes to speak of matters touching cosmogony and natural science. It would be more than strange that a book able to tell about the life to come should be mistaken as to the affairs of this life and world. If we cannot believe a man's statements, we are not likely to take his advice. So with the Bible. The Bible does not undertake to give a full account of every branch of science, but wherever it touches the field of any science, it does so with precision. The geological, botanical, zoological, and archaeological discoveries of recent years, where they have proved to be facts, are in accord with the statements of Scripture. A few illustrations will show this. Job refers to the creation of the earth as follows, quote, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing, end quote. Long before the discovery of the sphericity and suspension of the earth, and the inclination of its axis, were these facts inscribed in Scripture. In the prophecy of Amos occurs this statement, scientifically accurate, as to the production of rain. Quote, he calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. End quote. The nature of the sun as a dark substance surrounded by luminous flame has been already referred to. This is the title of it in Scripture. Light bearer. The great orbit of the sun has been spoken of in this text. Quote, he rejoiceth as a strong man to run his course. End quote. In the promise to Abraham, the stars are spoken of as the sand of the sea. 
it is one of the most recent revelations of our perfected telescopes that the stars are absolutely innumerable the figure of the sand is the very one used to express this amazing fact by astronomical writers in job again it is written to make a weight for the winds here is stated a fact science did not discover until the seventeenth century the atmosphere presses with a weight of fifteen pounds to the square inch in motion air presses as wind according to velocity lieutenant m f maury superintendent of the united states observatory and hydrographical office thus writes quote, canst thou bind the sweet influences of the pleiades it has been recently settled that the earth and sun with their splendid retinue of comets satellites and planets are all in motion around some point of attraction inconceivably remote and that point is in the direction of the star alcyone one of the pleiades as for the general system of atmospheric circulation which i have been so long endeavouring to describe the bible tells it all in a single sentence the wind goeth toward the south and turneth about the north it turneth about continually in its course and the wind returneth again to its circuits ecclesiastes one verse six wherever the bible speaks clearly on natural phenomena it affords a valuable clue to the scientific observer End quote. it may be remarked here that the list of objections to the bible is growing less every year as the exact readings meanings and references of scripture are being ascertained and experiment and discovery bring to us the actual facts those who are doubting this book which has stood so many centuries for these puerile objections will yet have cause to be greatly mortified at having given way in their faith when the creator comes to the formation of man there is a solemn pause and consultation Quote, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth the creation of man is described as a definite event there is no room in the narrative for any long process of development it is interesting to note that recent archaeological discoveries confirm the biblical narratives by the earliest traditions of the human race professor sace writes of the deciphering of an assyrian inscription academy july twenty third eighteen ninety three quote, the text i have just translated shows that the first man so created was adipa but in the sumerian the character pa might also be read ma so that the name of the hero of the legend would in this case be adima the biblical adam end quote. we are to consider christ as he contemplates this great work of making man let it be remembered that he was now to form a being with which he himself was to be associated from this on and forever that he was himself afterward to enter the life he was now to create and share all its nature and whatever changes and vicissitudes might come to it we see from this that christ had a personal interest in the formation of that being called man further that the being now to be made was to be not only the summit of all created things but was to be a partaker in the nature of god himself in our image was the plan of the godhead for man 
he was to be like god in being a spirit infinite in his possibilities eternal in his existence and eventually unchangeable in his destiny and character and to possess wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth he was to be like god the father in supremacy over all created things he was to be like christ in created mediatorship between all lower beings and their creator he was to be like the holy spirit in being a life-giver to others the creation of man is illustrated to us under a figure of mechanical operation that of the potter and the clay and the lord god formed man of the dust of the ground the inspired account presents a figure everywhere understood even by the lowest tribes for the moulding of vessels of clay is perhaps the most universal art in civilised lands it is applied to the representation of the internal organs as well as the full and perfect human figure every sinew and organ and gland have been represented by the plastic art and that which the potter and anatomist has done the creator of the potter and anatomist could surely do but the same figure is also used of all subsequent human beings coming by natural birth elihu said i also am formed out of the clay paul quoting isaiah uses the same figure quote, o man who art thou that repliest against god shall the thing formed say to him that formed it why didst thou make me thus or hath not the potter a right over the clay from the same lump to make one part a vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour even the evolutionist professor drummond uses the same figure quote, by a magic which has never yet been fathomed the hidden potter shapes and reshapes the clay End quote. it was or will be easily conceived to be a kind of art altogether different from that of man lange thus writes quote, the process represented in scripture however difficult to be understood conceptually is the opposite of mechanical formation it is the distinction between human and divine art god does not stand on the outside like a human artist and by means of tools and shaping processes introduce his idea into the work it is the word and idea working from within the outward material organization is its product instead of its cause End quote. mr huxley describes both the same figure and the process in the beautiful description he gives of the hatching of the salamander's egg quote, it is as if a delicate finger traced out the lines to be occupied by a spinal column and moulded the contour of the body pinching up the head at one end the tail at the other fashioning flank and limb to dual salamandrine proportions in so artistic a way that after watching the process hour by hour one is almost involuntarily possessed by the notion that some more subtle aid to vision than an achromatic would show the hidden artist with his plan before him striving with skilful manipulation to perfect his work the psalmist in describing his own formation has also followed the same process as to himself quote, thine eyes did see mine unperfect substance and in thy book were all my members written which day by day were fashioned when as yet there was none of them End quote. 
there is substantial agreement between the statements of Scripture and the revelations of science as to two of the three great facts of the problem. The material was earthly, the formation a process corresponding to natural embryonic growth. The point of disagreement is that the Scripture speaks of a de novo creation. He who believes in God can believe he could produce a human being under conditions unknown to us, and yet as naturally as the formation of all subsequently born. The absence of the matrix is not an insuperable difficulty to an omnipotent God. The scripture narrative of the creation of Adam's psychical and spiritual natures is as follows. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Here is the work of the Holy Spirit, seen afterward when Christ breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, and so imparted spiritual life to the disciples he had formed. When this spiritual illustration of the creation of Adam is added to the divine plan of the first man, let us make man in our image after our likeness and the actual work, and God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, we see that by no possible allowance can original man have been a savage or a caveman. Lange thus writes upon this, quote, The primitive divine impulse in the first man and in the first race makes them something very different from what is now called the savage state, and which is everywhere found to be the dregs of a once higher condition, the setting instead of the rising sun, the dying embers fast going out instead of the kindling and glowing flame. All past and present history may be confidently challenged to present the contrary case. Among human tribes wholly left to themselves, the higher man never comes out of the lower. Apparent exceptions do even, on closer examinations, confirm the universality of the rule in regard to particular peoples, while the claim as made for the world's general progress can only be urged in opposition by ignoring the supernal aids of revelation that have ever shown somewhere directly or collaterally on the human path. End quote. The creation of woman followed that of man. This agrees with the facts. Physiologically, a woman is a fairer and finer creature than man. She is more refined in texture of skin and bone and hair, more delicate in form and nerves, more beautiful in face, more quick in intuitions, more sensitive in feelings. All this testifies that she came after man and was made of more refined material. This is the account of Scripture. Quote, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. End quote. There are four witnesses to the truth of this narrative. First, the scripture writer who records it. Second, Adam, who affirms the account. And third, the Holy Spirit, who inspires both. In addition to these, we have the testimony of Christ himself in these words, quote, Have ye not read that he which made them from the beginning made them male and female? End quote. 
Here Christ verifies both the authenticity and truth of the narrative, and also the facts as related. Delich thus writes upon this, quote, What thus became independently existent in the woman had existed previously in Adam. We say it was in him, not it was his, for a glance at scriptural passages such as Luke 20, verse 35, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, which points to the abolition of bodily distinction of sex in future life, instructs us that, as the end is the fulfilment of the beginning, Adam was eternally sexless. But being eternally sexless, the distinguishing of the sexes was effected by separation of opposites, which up to that time had been united, not outwardly as pertaining to Adam, but inwardly in him. And the bodily distinctions of sex are only the external manifestation of the bodily organism transformed in conformity with that inward separation. End quote. This agrees with the original account. Quote, In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. End quote. And also with physiological facts. Woman's nature and sphere are here declared. She is not self derived nor independently created. The head of the woman is the man. The woman is the glory of the man. The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man, for neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. In all this, Eve was a type of the church, to which Christ was to occupy a similar relationship. In her creation is seen a forecast of the broken body and pierced side of him who was to so bring to himself his eternal companion. Adam himself was a type of his Lord. He stood at the head of the race as Christ does of his race spiritually. So also the process of formation is the same as in the church. Building. Everywhere the church is spoken of as formed upon the foundation of Christ by building. The purpose is also the same. Fellowship and increase. The figure of the woman is always used in scripture to represent the church, and the mission and place of the church is best understood when so looked upon. In the description of man's primeval home, there is every evidence of a literal account. The names of rivers and places are given, and we can identify them and locate them approximately. Here are none of the characteristics of the fable or myth. It agrees with what we know from secular sources of the beginning place of the human race, Nearly every nation has traditions corresponding more or less to this account. It was the right centre from which to effect the distribution of the race. From this spot radiate the three great continents and great seas. Eden was to be the centre of the earth. From this they were to disperse, and to this they were to return as their centre of worship and of government. Eden was to have spread over the earth, Civilization was also contemplated, for here was gold, the essential and peculiarity of civilization. Without a standard of value, no great commerce is possible. The precious stones represent luxury and adornment, another essential or accompaniment of a civilized state. There is here contemplated not a race of savages, but cultivated, educated, sinless beings, a civilization without sin or shame.
the verdict pronounced on all by the creator was all very good it is to-day although sharing in the results of sin a beautiful world and displays its creator's purpose for man and love to him but as it came fresh from its maker's hand it was a radiant jewel it was at this point doubtless that heaven's hallelujah was heard quote, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of god shouted for joy end quote. it presented such glory as no other sphere could exhibit its brightness was less than that of many others but no other could show such perfection of finish and infinity of detail seen from a distance as john saw the new jerusalem it was a jewel of green and blue tipped at either end with burnished silver it was curtained in fleecy clouds which by partly concealing enhanced its beauty closer examination revealed it swarming with an infinity of living things in endless variety of form and colour and motion there is no shape or combination of form or colour which cannot be duplicated in nature examining still more closely and critically it is seen to present everything that can please the sight gratify the palate or delight the hearing not only for the simple needs of the first pair but for countless generations yet unborn and ages to come and conditions which had not yet appeared the need of clothing fuel and light had been foreseen and provided for the use of animal food material for building metals for money and tools and materials for means of transportation all are there when christ built this world he stored it with all necessaries to last it throughout its endless journey we cannot conceive after reading this verdict all very good that there was anything but peace and happiness in this creation whatever might have been the case in the former world this was a blessed place the animals as well as man were vegetarians here then is the absence of that ravaging and tearing with tooth and claw by greater creatures of lesser ones the reconstructed earth tells us what that world was Quote, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall feed and their young one shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put his hand on the basilisk's den they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain this then was the state of the earth when god said it was all very good this was and is god's purpose for earth and all that it contains this state in which we live is an interregnum suffering is an interloper tears and sighs are abnormal graves are excrescences none of these are inseparable from earth and man we can now review the plan on which christ formed all things and their purpose the following scripture declares all this quote, in him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth things visible and things invisible whether thrones or principalities or powers all things have been created through him and unto him 
and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. End quote. The one thing clearly seen in nature is design. A great operation is seen advancing on the lines of a prearranged plan. To this every change conforms. From this no creature ever deviates. In this every organism has a place and fills it. All work harmoniously together in air and earth and sea to carry on the purpose of the common design, as if one supervising intelligence was directing each individual thing and class, here pushing that one on and there holding another back, and animating all and leading all to the completion of a great and supreme purpose. In the inspired account, we see the production of life during successive periods by well-defined stages, from lower to higher forms, culminating in man. The scriptural order is the scientific order of complexity, perfection of organism, and historical appearance. The same accuracy is discerned in the enumeration of the plants. The order is the botanical one, grass, herb, tree, in all this is also seen the adaptation of the lower to the use of the higher, as is seen in their prior creation. The master workman planned and made a full unbroken assortment. Species and varieties have been from time to time dropped out, but the original plan shows no gaps, no unfilled places, either in the design or sphere of nature. The creator began at the lowest type and worked up, each succeeding type being an improvement upon that which preceded it. This beautiful order of created things shows a working up to some great plan, which is to be the culmination of all, and the embodiment of all. The plan of creation is also seen advancing upon interior lines in the individual organism. Embryology shows that all living things start life alike. The germ of all plants and animals is the same. Neither chemical analysis nor microscopic examination can discern any difference. In its growth, each organism passes up through all these lower forms until it comes to the level of its own predetermined existence, when it stops and emerges into its life. The next higher beginning its journey at the same point advances through the same stages but goes on a stage further, so also with the next and each succeeding creature. Each is laid out upon the same plan, and is perfect so far as it goes. Both these courses of development, the external advance of all from lower to higher organisms, and the internal advance of the individual, are aiming at the same point of perfection, and find at last their goal to be the same. Both meet in the same ideal organism, man, which was the plan on which all these things were formed. Man is the ideal form of all lower forms. They are created unto him. They are laid out on the human outline, and fill out the form to a greater or less degree. The Creator had man in mind when he made them, and he had them in mind when he made man. Creation is thus seen to be one plan and organism. Man has often been called a microcosm of the universe. In his physical body are found all the constituent parts of the inorganic world. Every sun, no matter how great, every star however distant, 
is represented in the physical composition of the human body. In a closer and more vital way, he represents all living things. In the growth of the embryo, he passes up through every phase of organic life. He lives for a little time the life of each lower kind of being, and arrives at the end of his journey, having reached that which all others failed of attaining. Man fills out the full plan of the lower creation. But man was not the ultimate plan. He was made in the likeness of God, and this scripture we are considering tells us the special meaning of this likeness. It was in the image of Christ man was made. Christ was the special ideal to which man was measured. As all things of the lower forms of life look to man as their ideal, so man looks to Christ as his ideal. Christ was before all things, and looking to him as the ultimate plan, quote, in him were all things created, end quote, he represents the full wisdom of God, of which every other thing is but a part. God saw in Christ his ideal, and in creation worked it out. Creation is a manifestation of Christ. Every part and thing in creation is a reproduction of the divine nature as seen in Christ. Christ worked himself into creation, as he does spiritually into those who are the subjects of the new creation. The converse of this is true. In him all things consist. In Christ is everything represented, the material universe in all its elements, life in all its forms, from the lowest organism in the ascending scale to man, and from man up through the higher forms which inhabit the, as yet to us, unseen world, and to God himself, all are represented in him. They are created unto him, and are found in him in all their constituents. Christ is the bond of the universe, for in him all things consist. He is that which holds it together. He not only unites God and man, but all creation is united together in him. Creation is a unity, and Christ is its bond and centre. Creation is therefore holy. It is the house of God, that larger house of which Christ spake when he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. Further, in him all things consist. Creation depends on Christ. The correlation of forces is a well-known fact. They are interconvertible. Light can be changed into chemical action, and that into heat, and that into motion, and that again into light, and this order can be reversed. The conclusion is inevitable that these are forms of one and the same force, or of various operations of the same common central force. Scripture shows this to be the emanation of the divine energy, which is the power of the Holy Spirit operating in force, organic life, psychical activity, and spiritual power. We know the Holy Spirit proceeds from God through Christ. Christ, therefore, is the immediate source of all life. That which we call gravity and its compensatory force, which we call centrifugal, all forms of chemical action, all organic life of plants and animals, all that varied animation which throbs in man and lifts him above all creation, 
that higher form of life which expresses itself in prayer and piety and self-sacrifice, or that further power by which immortal beings live and exercise their mighty powers, every one of these forms of life depends on him, in whom all things consist. In him all things live and move and have their being. In a still higher sense, in him all things consist. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is, as has been seen, the great universal prophet, priest, and king. Mediatorial work was and is needed for the creation as well as for sinful man. Together they came, and together they fell. But in another sense, and a broader sense, Christ is the great mediator between all things and God. Sin and death came long before man. Leaves faded, animals died, angels sinned before a man had a being. All these needed a mediator. We must ever bear in mind that we are not all of creation, and that the work of Christ extends far beyond the bounds of man. Creation needed a saviour as well as a creator. We can distinguish between Christ's work as universal mediator and as man's redeemer. The former is much older and wider than the latter. It is in this wide sense all things consist in him. Unto him were all things created. Christ is the owner and heir of all creation. He is so by the three rites of primogeniture, redemption, and victory. But we are now considering the first only. This has been referred to as coming from his being the firstborn of all creation. Every foot of land on earth is Christ's. The silver and the gold are his. Every living thing is his. He has the original deed, and has never conveyed title to any, save those who are to be joint heirs with him, in final ownership and occupancy. Sin is a trespasser, and Satan a robber. God has by this original right given Christ the fee to all creation. Quote, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. If Christ is so personally and intimately connected with nature, it should reveal him, and reveal him in his peculiar personality and offices. It has been seen that there was a plan on which creation was constructed, and that plan was Christ, and that Christ worked himself into creation. Therefore, creation should show all of Christ and all of the gospel, and it does. The argument for the existence of God from design seen in nature is presented in many places in Scripture and has never been answered. But we are now to look for Christ himself in nature. It was man's first Bible, and for centuries it was his only Bible. Whoever shuts his eyes to this older Scripture is not wise. To it Christ turned for texts and parables. To it he betook himself for comfort as he fled from the haunts of man, for rest and strength in the wilderness and mountaintop. It was to the Creator the apostles directed their prayer when seeking the Holy Spirit, and to him the greatest of the apostles appealed to bring careless man's thoughts to God. The incarnation of Christ in nature has been shown. He lives in every living thing. 
the double relationship of the Christian is true for all Christ's holy world of created things. They are in him and he is in them. The earthly life of Christ is seen in nature's processes. Every living thing is born as he was. In solitude and silence, everything that hath life is born of God. Every plant and animal has its time of waiting until its hour is come, and it receives its baptism for service of fruit-bearing. The ministry of Christ is being repeated every day. The Son of Man is still on earth. Miracles have not ceased. The only healing natural man can effect is nature's healing. Every harvest is a table spread in the wilderness. Every storm is stilled as that on Galilee. And if we would only listen, we would hear sermons from lilies and sparrows and fields of grain, as in days of old. The cross is the great principle of nature's action. Quote, Except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. The story of the cross is told whenever a grain of seed falls into the ground and, dying, gives life to others. Vicarious suffering is the law of nature. By it come fruitful harvests and filled granaries. The struggle for existence is not the great effort of living things, there is a greater struggle than that. The aim of every organic thing is not self-preservation, but propagation. For this it lives and eats and toils, and at last, having accomplished that for which it came, it dies. The mother animal struggles most fiercely, not for her own life, but for that of her young. The plant strives to lift its head up through the surrounding mass to reach the light and blossom, and bear its fruit. We have seen that the law of entrance into the kingdom of God is this. Ye must be born from above. The clod cannot enter the plant sphere, nor the plant into that of the upper animal kingdom, except it be born from above. The power of the upper kingdom must come upon it, and by its own strength incorporate it and make it part of itself. The six days creation teaches this lesson and is set before us as a type of the necessary change. The first chapter of the Bible is a proof and type and illustration of the law, ye must be born again. There the steps of the change are shown. First, in the creation and regeneration is the Spirit of God moving in the darkness. Light is the first gift to the soul as to the dark world. The breath of the Spirit, the formation of a new heart, in which the seeds of all life can grow, and the culmination of the work in the new man are the steps of the work of Christ in the soul and the earth. A Sabbath rest and a life in Eden follows each. There is faith, too, in nature. All things live there by faith. There is no distrust there. Each plant and animal lives by the day. The seed sprouts and trusts that showers will come and sun will shine. The ground sparrow builds her nest beside a clod and trusts that no foot will crush it and that her small family will be provided for. The little ant goes forth on its daily ramble amid untold and awful dangers and doubts not it will return safely to its home. For entire consecration we must look to nature. 
There everything is wholly devoted to the will of him who made it, and asks for nothing more than to do his will. There is no sin in nature. Every plant and bird and animal is perfectly holy. The little insect fluttering in the sunshine for a day perfectly fulfills its maker's will. Nature tells us of another life and world. Resurrection is taught by Paul in the great resurrection chapter in the language and processes and forms of nature. The whole plan of Christ, the plan of the ages, has been disclosed in every field sown and reaped. Creation is a prophecy. The stars tell of other worlds than ours. The sunset is an open door into heaven, through which every devout soul may look and see an apocalyptic vision. It comes to us silently in the evening of the day, when weary man needs to be helped to his rest, and as the rising shadows of the earth veil it from our sight, it sends to us through the twilight a parting message, I will come again. Summer is nature's account of heaven. We instinctively describe our heaven so. We love to picture it a land of green fields and crystal streams, of fruits and flowers. We ask where heaven is, and looking up, the heavens declare to us the coming glory of God. Nor is the truth of the other and sterner side left untold. Nature visits awful penalties on all violators of her laws, even to death. She punishes the rebel and abuser of the natural laws of God. The fate that smites the glutton and drunkard and debauchee, the pestilence that walks through the haunts of filth and vice, are nature's penalties. The thunder and earthquake warn man of a coming day of doom. The fires of the volcano tell of the possible fate of earth, and the bottomless lake of fire, living in earth's centre, verifies scripture which says, Such is hell, nature tells us some are lost. Every belated stalk moans its wintry fate. Quote, the harvest is past, and the summer is ended, and I am not saved. End quote. It is in view of all this that the Apostle writes, quote, The invisible things of him since the creation of the world are clearly seen, being perceived through the things that are made, even his everlasting power and divinity, that they may be without excuse. End quote. At the last great accounting, if any voice shall say, I did not know, nature will answer by ten thousand voices, I told you all. Impiety is unnatural, unbelief is insanity, atheism is a crime against nature. Nature's gospel is despised of man as her master's gospel was and is. She, like her master, is sad over man's neglect. All her voices are in the minor key. Nature's aspects are strangely solemnizing. Not only the undevout astronomer is mad, but all are worse than mad, who in nature's temple forget to worship him who made and sustains it all. It was this Christ had in mind when he said, quote, If these should hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. End quote. Nature is indignant at man's impiety and rebellion against their common maker and ruler. There is great comfort to the people of Christ, as they look out on it all, to know it is his and therefore holy. We are in his temple, wherever we are. 
every stone is sacred, every foot of earth is consecrated. All its many voices are sounds of praise, all its creatures are worshippers. As surely as from around the throne there rises a pure and full anthem of glory to God, so from all in air and earth and sea there rises an answering volume of praise. Science tells us all things are in motion. Nature is constantly vibrating with sensation, that even stones are not lifeless things. Their atoms are constantly moving. From the lowest depths of earth to the highest and most distant star, creation praises God. The psalmist describes it in these words, Nature's Song of Praise. Quote, praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapour, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. There is great peace for the believer in the knowledge of the world he lives in. He is in his father's house, and looking forward to the new earth, knowing whose it was and is, can say, quote, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. End quote. Death is only passing from the outer to the inner sanctuary. End of chapter 2